All right. Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Uh, thanks for coming here. My name is Peter. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the guys on staff. And it is good to see everybody here. This time last year, it was just me here. Just lonely old me and... I think like five or six of my family members might have been watching online somewhere out there in cyberspace. But it is good to have everybody in the building. And I'm going to do what Brandon's kind of already done, but I'm going to make us do it bigger because here's why. Throughout centuries, there's something that uh, believers have done, Christians have done this day. If you're not a Christian, if you're like this whole Jesus thing isn't for me, man, we're glad you're here. I don't want to force you into something gimmicky, so you don't need to do this. But for those of us who believe this is true, what Christians have done for centuries and are doing today in all sorts of churches all over the world is there will be a guy on the stage. Today, that is me wearing the suit the only time you're going to see me wearing a suit. See? No! Stop! See, I know a few of you are cheering because you like, I think the pastor should always wear a suit. And then I think others of you who are cheering are like, man, I hope oh boy don't ever wear a suit again because I feel uncomfortable. All right, anyway, who cares about all that? This is what happens. The dude who wears the suit one day a year up here says he is risen. And then those of you who believe that say in response, he is risen indeed. Okay, wait, oh, don't get so excited. We're going to do it right now. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Let's make it good. Ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, B plus. <laughs> B plus. I think when it was just me in the room last year, I was doing it louder than that by myself. <laughs> so we're going to do it. Ready? We're going to do it. We're going to put that. We're going to just do it. Ready? Ready? He is risen. Yes, that's awesome. And that is why, for those of us who are believers, we are here to celebrate. And for those of you who aren't Christians or don't even know what it's about, uh, in many ways, today's sermon is just kind of try to put some things in context for you. And if you're a Christian, it's going to be some things that you've heard a lot before, but that's okay because there's nothing wrong with hearing things we've heard a lot before, right? So we're going to celebrate. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about ourselves. But before I do that, I'm going to pray. So uh, let me pray. Father, Thank you for this opportunity to come and to celebrate. Thank you that you loved us so much that this is a day uh, that many of us look to as the absolute basis of our hope. That there's so many things around us that don't honor and come through with what they've promised they would do for us. And we face disappointments and we face discouragements. And so to be able to look back to a moment and say, this is what I believe and I'm clinging to that, Father, is good. Thank you for the story of Jesus. Thank you that he came out of love for us. Thank you that love surrounds this whole day. And I pray as we talk about the story and think about things, Father, that uh, at the end of the day, we will honor and glorify Jesus who died for us, who gave up so much for us, who is risen for us, who is our King. And thank you for that truth. And we pray this in the name of our risen King, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, it is Easter Sunday, right? It is a day when all sorts of churches in all sorts of countries with all sorts of people, uh, man, are celebrating the, the moment in the Christian calendar and Christian history where we celebrate that this is the day we remember and cling to and affirm that Jesus came back from the dead. And it's a, it's a day of joy for many people. It's a day of joy for many Christians and excitement and happiness. But as, as true as that is on one hand, there's this other reality that's true on the other hand. And the other hand is that for a lot of those people and a lot of those churches today, there's some things that are weighing them down. There's some challenges that they're facing. There's some difficulties. There's some worries. There's some problems. 
So, so we, we live in these two worlds, right, for many people today, and maybe for a lot of us here today, we're here to celebrate, we're here with excitement, we're here with gladness, but at the very same moment, we're here, even though we have on our Sunday best, whatever that means, we're still here in this moment facing some problems, facing some things we don't know how to fix, we don't know how to get out of that are weighing us down, and some of you may be thinking, Smith, bro, it's like Easter Sunday, like you didn't even get 45 seconds into the gig until you started talking about problems. We shouldn't be talking about problems on Easter, but actually that's not true because at the end of the day, at its lowest common denominator, what the Easter story is all about is a simple solution to a deep, deep problem that all of us at one point have faced. Easter, at the end of the day, at the simple common core of what this day is about is today is the solution to a problem, and it's a problem that every single one of us in this room at some point have faced, and it's a problem that maybe a lot of us in this room today are still facing. And to understand the Easter story, there's lots of ways to come at it, but to understand kind of the richness of it and the link to it in history and how it fits in, we need to understand what some people a whole long time ago faced. We need to go back thousands of years before Jesus, this guy, came on the scene to see what some people were going through. Here's my disclaimer. About halfway through this sermon, you're going to think to yourself, oh, man, we've got to pray for Peter because old boy forgot that it's Easter. He's gotten lost in the weeds somewhere else. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten it's Easter, right? And we're going to come back to it. But we can't get to Easter too quick because we've got to understand what the story is before us. And so we're going to go thousands of years before Jesus, and we're going to think about a group of people. And those are the people we refer to today as the Jewish people. Back then, we were calling them Israelites. And we're going to continue what we've been doing here on Sunday mornings at Calvary. And if you haven't been with us, you'll be able to jump in pretty quickly. What we've been doing is walking through the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible with all these stories, with all these things, and we're just trying to say, how does all of this fit together? Like, like, what is the story about? And we've been walking through that, and we'll continue to walk through that, and usually we go like verse by verse, chapter through chapter. Today's going to be a, a little bit different, but we're going to pick up where we've left off with what these Jewish Israelite people have been facing. And what we've seen is we've been tracking kind of this birth of this nation, this birth of this people group, the birth of these Israelites. And, and where we've been, and even if you haven't been with us, here's where we are. That these Israelite people, who at one point had all sorts of great stuff in their past, man, they had prestige, they had honor, they had their own homes, they had their own business, they, they because of a famine, were driven into a country. And now the people who are in charge of that country, the country of Egypt, they don't like these Israelites. They don't like these foreigners being here. And out of fear, out of worry, they, they try to control their power and they control the strength. And so these Israelite people who once had uh, this livelihood and were flourishing in the country of Egypt, what the Egyptians have done is cracked down on them. And they've made them slaves. And they've taken everything away from them that was their identity. They've taken away their freedom. And they've trapped them. They've oppressed them. They've enslaved them. They've made them work in this hard labor. And it's really interesting, right? This, this huge problem they faced thousands of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, being trapped by this problem of slavery and not being able to rescue themselves. <clears throat> and maybe this morning, some of you, and you're not slaves in the country of Egypt, 
But maybe some of us this morning either have or at this point in our lives, we feel trapped by a problem. Or we're trapped and we may not even know it. And I don't mean trapped because like, and I'm not talking like trivial problems like, oh, life is so hard. My daffodils didn't sprout where I planted them last year, right? Or, oh, it was chilly and my heated seats didn't warm me up as enough as, I'm not talking trivial problems. I'm talking about, man, heavy problems, heavy problems. See, all of us, no matter what you believe spiritually, where you come from, where you are in your story, all of us in this room, we want to feel fulfilled. All of us in this room, we want to have joy. We want to have a sense of, of peace. We want life to work. But maybe for some of us, and for definitely for people around the world, other Christians, there's this reality that it's not their story. There's something that is keeping us from what we most long for, and that's a problem. For some of us, our lives, our story, We don't let people know this. We don't tell people this. But deep down inside, I mean, I mean deep down inside, where nobody else sees past the bravado and past that I've got it all together, we know that our life just isn't working the way we think it should be. For some of us, there's this emptiness, there's this hollowness. There's this like I yearn for something that I'm not experiencing. In addition to that, right, maybe what we're going through is we have some concept of God. We have some concept of God, but we're just like, man, I just don't feel like my life is matching up to that. I just don't feel like I'm close to that being. I feel like there's this disconnect, there's this distance, or maybe we don't have any concept of God. Maybe we we think, okay, there is something bigger than me. There is this higher power. There is something bigger than myself, but I I don't really know how I access that. Like, how do I get that person to like me, approve of me? Does that ever happen? Is that ever possible? All of us at some point have faced a common problem, and maybe a bunch of us this morning are facing some of those problems that I discussed. And as we think about a lot of problems that I face in my life and you face in your life and we face together, an extra little um, layer to it is this, that many of the problems that we face, we've done it to ourselves. Many of the things that we're going through in our life or have gone through our life or will go through in our life that have led us to emptiness or unfulfillment or confusion or chaos are things that we've brought onto ourselves. Whether consciously or not, we've gotten trapped by a problem. We've gotten burdened by something, held down with something. And we've put ourselves in that situation. We've put ourselves in that situation because of this thought that that we, we live our lives with. Here's the reality. Again, Christian, not Christian, different faith traditions, no faith tradition. Here is the reality, no matter where you are. Our view of God shapes how we respond to God. Our view of God shapes how we respond to God, and how we respond to God shapes everything else in our life. If you think that there is no God, well, that's going to determine how you live your life and what you do. If you think there's a God out there who is really, really angry and out to get you and keeping you back from fun, that's going to shape what we do. 
We think there's a God out there who's distant that we can never connect with. That's going to shape what we do. Our view of God shapes how we respond to God, and how we respond to God shapes everything else in our life. Let's take this one, one, one level layer, right? Let's press into this a little more. And to do that, let's think about this TV show. COVID has like really broadened my TV viewing. I won't share all of my TV viewing with you, but there's this show out there. It's, it's, we're starting at the beginning called The Prophet. Anybody ever watch The Prophet with Marcus Lamonis? Okay, when I go home and I have my peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunchtime, I always throw on a little Prophet. My youngest daughter and I, love watching this. She's in middle school, but man, she is ready to be entrepreneur of the year because she's learned a lot. Here's the premise of this show, The Prophet. This really rich dude who got really rich selling campers and camper companies. Man, what have I done? I should have sold some campers, right? He, he, he now has millions of dollars and he goes into failing, struggling businesses and he invests in them. And if he invests in them, he comes in and he just turns everything upside down organizationally, process-wise, Everything that they do, right? So there was this uh, company that he went to, I watched this a couple weeks ago, outside of Boston. There's this uh, drum maker company. They make drums for bands like Imagine Dragons, all sorts of different groups. And Marcus goes in there and they only had one really high-end drum that they made. I mean like thousands of thousands of dollars. And so Marcus goes in there and he says, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer other tiers of drums. Right? We're going to offer the, better, the best drum, but then we're also going to offer better, and then we're going to also offer good. We're going to have a good drum, a better drum, and then we're going to have the best drum. And people can opt in at different price points wherever they want to. And for some of us, when we think about this reality that our view of God shapes how we respond to God and how we respond to God shapes everything else in life, you know what our view of God is? Maybe. Maybe our view of God, if we think there is a God, is our view of God could be, well, God's good, but there's something I think is a little better. Or maybe God's better than some things, but I'm not going to stand up on Easter Sunday and say this in church, but I don't actually think God is the best. Because I think that there's something that can do better for me than God. I think there's something that can more deeply satisfy me or complete me or take away the emptiness that I'm feeling. God is good, but really there's something better to make my life work. Or, you know, God is better, but actually there's something that I think and I believe is the best compared to that. And I'm looking to this thing to make it okay. I'm looking to this thing to give me fulfillment, give me peace, give me happiness, just make it all seem like it makes sense. And we turn to that thing to be our functional savior. But over time, what's happened in a lot of our stories is that thing's failed us. This thing's let us down. And the God who we've said, yeah, God, you're good, or maybe you're better, God's sitting there the whole time saying, man, you're missing it. I, I'm not just good, I'm not just better, but I'm, I'm the best. And here's why. Let's, let's not use church cliches today, but if we press into it, right, what this book reveals about God is that God is the best for two reasons. What God is devoted to is he's devoted to his worship 
and he's devoted to your good. His worship being held as the best, but hand in hand with that, God is also devoted to your good. But, but see, some of us, that, that's not our view of God. Because we hear God tell us to do things. We've been in church. We've heard all the do's. We've heard all the don'ts. We've heard all the whatevers. And we think to ourselves, that, that, don't, that don't even sound good. Like there's a life out there I want. And that seems like it's keeping me from it. But it's not. Because God is devoted to two things. He's devoted to his worship. And he's devoted to your good. And those two things go hand in hand together. So when God says, hey, trust me, love me, obey me, he's not saying that so that you'll feel less joy. He's actually saying that so that you'll feel more joy. When God says, I'm the best, trust me, he's not saying that to make you feel less satisfied. He's actually saying that to make you feel more satisfied. Does that mean every day is going to be great? No. That's nonsense because that's not true. But even in the hard days, what it means is you're going to feel satisfaction. It, it, when God tells us that, hey, I'm the best, it's not to make us feel less fulfilled. It's actually to make us feel the most fulfilled we'll ever be. But that for whatever reason, isn't this for some of us. It's not our view of God. And when our view of God isn't those things, we turn from God as God being the best to, eh, maybe he's just good. And when that happens, two things then flow from that. And the first thing that flows from that isn't as bad as the second thing thing that flows from that. The first thing that flows to that is this. We've looked to something that's better than God or best before God. We've gone all in on that. All the chips into this is what I think, this is what I'm putting my faith in. Every single one of us in this room this morning, you got your faith in something. You do. You got your faith in yourself. A lot of people have that. And interestingly, we're sometimes so successful in life, we think like, I don't need no God. I'm doing okay on my own. Put our faith in ourselves, put our faith in success. We put our faith in money so that we can have comfort because we think that'll give us control, which we're trying to get. We put our faith in escape because we know it's broken and we just want to mask it. And when we put our faith in th- those things, the very first thing that happens is one day, someday, that thing that's promised you hope is going to let you down. That thing that's promised you freedom, it's not going to deliver. And instead of being fulfilled, we're going to feel trapped. Trapped. The very thing we turn to to give us freedom is going to one day, someday be the thing that we then feel enslaved by. And you may not think it's true. That may not be part of your story. But there's a whole lot of people, if we start to pass the mic around, who could say, yeah, that is part of my story. The thing we turned to that we thought was better than God to give us freedom is one day, someday, the thing that's going to make us feel trapped. That's a bad problem. Nobody wants to be trapped. Nobody wants to be unfulfilled. 
Nobody wants a broken life, but that problem compared to another problem is minimal. Because the bigger problem is when you and I looked in the mirror and we looked at God and we said, nope, I'm going to put you in time out and I'm going to go do it my way. I'm going to do my thing because I don't want you to keep me from joy. I don't want you to keep me from satisfaction. So I'm going to go get it on my own. What this book then says, a three-letter word that I know our culture and you may not like, but I, hey, I'm the guy up here with the Bible. So here's the deal. What happens in that moment is this word called sin. Sin. And then we face this moment where a holy God, a loving God, but yet a just God, looks down at me and says, bro, you've got something in your life that's gone against me that I need to punish because I'm a just God. And a just God does not allow unjust things to go and not be taken care of. And then we face two problems. The thing we've turned to to freedom leaves us trapped. And now we're facing this punishment. And in that moment, we're trapped. It was um, like 2000, early 2000s. I don't remember when. I'm getting old. Dates don't really matter. It's early 2000s. And we had three kids at the time. We were living in Atlanta, Georgia. And we had a car that is not nearly as cool as my 2001 Toyota 4Runner that I drive now. But we had a green Isuzu Trooper. Anybody had a green Isuzu Trooper? Probably not because of what my story is going to be about. We had a green Isuzu Trooper. And we had three kids. And they've all had car seats. And, man, that back seat was getting tight. And so, like, literally, we had these car seats. There was not a, you could take, like, a nuclear microscope, and I don't even know if there's such a thing, and you would not see a gap between those car seats. They had somehow fused together in this amazing reality of car seat fusion when you're crunched in a car of the back seat that's too small for you. In order to get our kids in the car seat, my wife or I would strap them in, and then one of us would go to the door, and it'd be like, okay, like this football linebacker, like a cop breaking in the door, We'd rush up against the door and slam it shut, and the car seats would go rip, and they'd all be smushed in there. Some friends of ours thought, this is ridiculous. These morons, our kids are on top, and so they had a, a minivan they were getting rid of. They offered us a great deal on it. So we were in Atlanta, and we had our three kids and my wife, and I was driving, and we were driving to the airport to fly out to get this new minivan. And we're driving along, and I can still remember the place, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I, I see this object kind of coming in my direction, okay? I'm like, huh, interesting. Driving along, kids are like, I need some Cheerios, put on Barney. Please don't put on Barney, for the love of God, don't put on Barney more. And I'm driving along and I still see this thing coming at me. And then it's starting to get closer and starting to come faster. And then I start to myself and I think, that's a car. (laughs) And then I think, it's coming at me. And it shouldn't be coming at me at the direction in which it's coming at me. And it comes at me. It was a Corvette. I remember it. I'm driving down the road, and I remember this. And, and, and this Corvette is coming out of my peripheral vision. And then I see it getting closer. And then I'm thinking to myself, this Corvette's about to hit me. This thing's about to plow into me. And so I drove, and I thought, but all that's happening fast. And then before I even knew what happened, exactly what I thought might happen, happened. this Corvette plows into us. And there is this crunch that happened. 
And that crunch happened on the driver's side of my door and my kids, one kid's behind me. And then something happened and, and that never happened to me before. This is Susie Trooper that a moment ago was on all four wheels, starts tipping over. And now it's on two wheels. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this in your life, but people say it, but it's true. Time goes in slow motion. And I am in slow motion with three kids who a minute ago wanted to watch Barney and a wife and my Isuzu Trooper is now tipping over in the direction so that like my wife and another kid are about to hit the ground. The vehicle tips over on its side. And then I kind of start to feel this little like rocking that it starts. And I'm like, is it going to tip all the way over? It doesn't tip all the way over, but it comes with this huge crash on the side. And then everything slows down even more. And this is the thought of, I can't believe this is happening. Followed up with this thought of, okay, I think it's over. And now I'm going to look around and I'm not sure how this is going to end. And I look around and my wife is against the, the, the road on one side. And my kids are dangling from car seats, sobbing. And there's still dust and there's still debris. And I try to get out of my dealio, but I can't because the seatbelt, and I'm like trapped. And then it's like TV. Where, where a few moments, I mean, it doesn't seem like a moment, but at some point we're there, we're trying to figure out what to do, where all of a sudden <clears throat> these firemen show up on the scene and these guys, like, I mean, they were like my heroes. They had on these awesome things and they, 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 there were these guys on top of the car moving every, these firemen. I still remember screaming up to them, don't move it too much, I don't want it to roll any further. And the guys had some tools, and they opened up the door that we couldn't open up because it had been smashed in. And then I remember somebody reaching down their hand and saying, hey, we're going to get you out of here. We're going to get you out of here. And you know what? I needed somebody to get me out of there because I was trapped. And I couldn't do it on my own. And as we think back to these people thousands of years before Jesus, they too were trapped in slavery. And they weren't in a Suzu trooper, but they were in a situation that they couldn't get out of on their own. And into their story, God comes and reaches down and says, hey, I'm here. I'm going to get you out of this. And it's going to be okay. I'm going to free you. So, so what was involved in their story <clears throat> a long time ago to try to rescue them? Well, the night that they were rescued links with the first ever Passover. If you're interested and you have Jewish friends, or maybe you just see it on your Apple calendar, right? Passover, and you've always wondered, like, ah, what's that all about, right? Well, well, here's what it's about. God told them, said, look, I'm here now to rescue you. I'm on top of your car. I'm going to pull you out of what you're trapped from. I'm going to bring punishment, but I'm also going to give you a way to avoid the punishment and to free you. And so for those people who were trapped, God tells them what they needed to do in a couple of verses. He says, look, You tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for their household. A little more details about that lamb to those people who were trapped that says this, right? Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And then what were they supposed to do with that lamb? 
right? So they got the little lamb. What do they do with it? Well, the instructions go on and it says this. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Instructions about what they're to do once that lamb has been killed. Take a bunch of hyssop. I don't know what hyssop is, but whatever, right? Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. So the lamb's been killed. There's blood. Dip it in the lamb that's in the basin and touch the lintel. That's the top of the doorframe. It's not a lentil. So if you want some lentil soup right now or a lentil smoothie, that's not what it is. Touch the lintel, which is the top of the door, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So what these guys were supposed to do is take this lamb, kill the lamb, get the blood. Blood goes on the top of the doorway, and then blood goes on this kind of doorframe and this doorframe. So top, doorframe, doorframe, right? None of you shall go out the door of this house until the morning. Now, is there any significance right, of, of why that blood was there. Any significance of what was going on? Well, what we see is this, right, on the top, on the side, on the side, some people think that, man, that's kind of interesting because if you draw a line down, it makes a cross. I remember being in South Norwalk in a Sunday school class and my teacher, when I was like six, taught this, and they didn't have, like, Apple pencils back then. They didn't have dry erase boards, but they had something called chalk. I know. It's crazy, right? You could sell it on eBay for like $500 now. So they took some chalk, and what this teacher did was a little red spot here, red spot there, red spot there, drew the line down, and drew the line across, and it made the shape of a cross. Was that some sort of foreshadowing? I don't know. But look what's going to happen when they see this thing. Look what God says is going to be the result. The blood shall be a sign for you and the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why this is called Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's what God's saying. I'm going to bring punishment for the people who have sinned. But I'm also going to free you. But if you want to be freed, if you don't want to suffer the punishment, if you want to be released from what's trapping you, then here's what you got to do. You got to take your little blood. You got to get a lamb. You got to throw it on the side of the doors, throw it up here. And when I see it, I will pass over. I won't judge you. You won't be part of the people who are punished. An interesting other little point about where this blood was put is in Egyptian households, at least. We don't know if the Jews also did this. There were the people's names written on the doorways. And hieroglyphics, really colorful hieroglyphics, they'd put the names so you'd know like whose house it was, right? And interestingly, the blood would cover where those names were. This idea perhaps that God at a certain point isn't going to see their names anymore. It's not going to see their stories. It's not about how good or how bad they've been. It's about whether there's the blood there. And that's what he sees. They are then under that. They are then protected by that. And this is so simple, right? This is so simple. And in order to gain the benefit of that, in order to gain the benefit of being freed and not being punished, you know what they had to do? They actually had to do this. They actually had to respond. If they were sitting at their kitchen table that night playing dominoes together as a family, and they're like, yeah, God said something about putting blood up there, but I don't know. <clears throat> that seems weird. 
Like, I mean, really? Blood, putting some blood around, that's going to protect us from all these things God said? They're going to have to, they had to decide whether they were going to trust it. Here's what's really important. Them putting the blood on the sides of the thing, responding that way, that did not save them. What saved them was God's mercy and God's kindness in being willing not to punish them and being willing to spare them. But they did have to respond in order to benefit from that. And every Jewish family and even the Egyptian families, if they heard about this, had to that night make a choice. Am I going to do it? How am I going to respond? And you know what? For families that chose not to, their non-response was in and of itself a response. To those families who were faced with what they had heard, as simple as it might sound, as weird as it might sound, they had a choice. How are we going to respond? And their decision not to respond was a response in and of itself. So right about now, three of you are thinking like, Peter, that's really interesting about the Old Testament. But I actually think you were right. You have forgotten it's Easter Sunday. I've not forgotten it's Easter Sunday. What does this have to do with Easter? This is what it has to do with Easter. There was this man, Jesus, who came. And this man, Jesus, who came, historical figure, interestingly, you know how he was referred to many times in his life as a lamb. Linking back to that Passover lamb. Look, check out these verses that talk about Jesus. John the Baptist sees him. He sees Jesus coming, the beginning of his ministry, right? Early 30s. And said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then another place, another pastor makes this even more specific. And he says this, right? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. A few days before Easter, this holy week, Jesus had Passover with his closest friends, celebrating that tradition. But Jesus wasn't just a guy that was having Passover with his friends. Jesus was symbolically himself the Passover lamb, who himself had come to take away the sins who himself had come to rescue people from what trapped them, who he himself had come to give freedom and to allow people to avoid punishment. And let's press a little deeper into that because that's nice, that's good, but let's just get clear. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what the story is. It's this, that a holy God A just God has to punish sin. And that sin traps all of us. And what Jesus said is, look, I'm coming to be your substitute. I'm coming to stand in your place. I will willingly be punished by God for what you've done wrong so that you don't ever have to face punishment so that you can be restored to God, so that the thing that traps you, you won't be trapped by. He's reaching down to where we are, and he's saying, look, I'm here, and I'm going to get you out, and I want to make it all right as a substitute. And then what Jesus said, just like was said to the Jewish people centuries and thousands of years before, Jesus says, look, but, but you got to trust me. And if you trust me, the Father won't see all the things that you've done wrong. You know what the Father's going to see is my blood, my righteousness, my standing in your place. 
and God will pass over ever punishing you because I've been punished for you and because of you. I will, I'm going to make this swap. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take what traps you. And I'm going to give you a life of more abundance. Does that mean you'll never get sick? No. Does that mean you'll get the highest paying job? No. Does that mean you'll never scream at your spouse? No. Does that mean you're going to have a picket fence with two and a half kids and a yellow lab? Not necessarily, but it does mean that somehow Jesus said, I've come to give you a life of more abundance. Come to rescue you. Because you're trapped by the very thing you thought would give you freedom. And you're trapped by sin. And you're dangling in the car. But I'm here to make it. All right. Now, right? Does any of that really matter? That may have been an adequate presentation of what the Bible says, but does any of it really matter? Well, let's think about that. Here's the reality. I don't know of any instance when the Jewish family was eating their Passover lamb that the little lamb jumped up from the table and ran away. When that lamb was killed, it was killed, right? And if Jesus... The story is that Jesus, after he had that Passover meal, claiming to be the Passover lamb, he was then that night betrayed, let down, arrested, falsely accused, abandoned, murdered, and died. And if that's where the story ends, then you know what? It really does, he doesn't really matter. Right? Maybe we can learn some pleasant like little moral lessons from him about how it would be nice to old ladies crossing the street. But if he's dead... If he's in the tomb, then guess what? He was one of two things. He was crazy, or he was just the biggest liar that's ever showed up. Crazy, or the biggest liar that's ever showed up. So why don't bother? But you know what? He didn't just die. And that wasn't the end of the story. And the end of the story is that, man, in a supernatural way, that tomb is empty. The bones aren't there. You, there is, I hesitate to say absolute fact. I don't think I've ever read anybody who's claiming that, oh, no, look, you just overlooked Jesus' body. He's there. I, 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 anybody I can think of, even people who don't believe there's anything supernatural about Jesus, admit that the body was gone. The question is, where did it go? The question is, where did it go? Ain't nobody saying, no, 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 let's hop on the tour bus and come see a skull. It's Jesus. Most everybody, see how nice I'm not using broad sweeping generalizations. Everybody, most everybody says that the the tomb's empty. The question is, where did it go? And there are all sorts of theories to describe and explain where the body went. But here's the truth. To accept those, man, that's harder than to accept that the God who actually created the whole universe was able in a supernatural miracle to raise somebody from the dead. When you go through hard times in life, even if you don't believe in God, do you pray like, God, I've been distant from you, but man, my mom has cancer. Will you heal her? If you believe that a God is able to heal cancer and intervene into the natural order to do that, then why can't that God raise somebody from the dead? He can. And he did. And Jesus was not crazy. And Jesus was not a liar because you know what? Exactly what he said happened happened the tomb was empty if you want any more information about all the other theories about where the body went i'd be happy to discuss this with you more detailed but but here's where i want to land us today 
And I'll ask the worship team to start making their way up here as we close. I just want to end today with two questions, two comments to two different groups in the room. If you're in the room today or watching us online today, and you're not a Christian, right? Maybe other faith tradition, maybe you've heard this a whole lot, but you think, oh, that's, that's silly. That's nonsense. I don't know. I'll think about it. Well, for every single Israelite who heard what God said about the way to be rescued and the way to have punishment pass over them, you know what? Every single one of them had to respond. Every single one of them had to respond. And for them, the way in which they responded changed everything. It determined whether they remained trapped and punished and actually killed or determined whether they were freed and given life. And for you and me, there comes a point where every single person in some way has to respond to what Jesus said about himself. There does. Every single person at some point has to respond to what Jesus said about himself. And what Jesus says is, if you want for me to pull you out of the place in which you're trapped by sin and pull you out of an empty life that you know not's working, then, then you got to respond. you got to respond in faith, not by putting money in an offering box or trying harder or swearing less. <clears throat> it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Respond. And maybe, maybe, There's one person today. Maybe they were sitting on the blue chairs in the first service. Maybe they're watching us online. Maybe they'll click this thing on Tuesday and watch it. Maybe they're sitting on the blue chairs right now. Maybe it's you. You know what? Everybody someday has to respond, and maybe for you this day is your day. Maybe it's your day. And for all of us, not responding is a response in and of itself. And the response that rescues us is one of faith that, Father, I know that I have sinned. And I believe that Jesus died for me and because of me and instead of me. Respond. If you haven't responded, we all have to respond. And maybe this day for you and then for Christians... For those of you who walked into the room believing in Jesus, here's what I'd like to remind you of. What I want to remind you of is that Jesus isn't still in the tomb. The lamb is still not dead. And instead, here's this amazing truth that we hear about what Jesus is experiencing this moment. He is not a skeleton in a cold, dusty grave somewhere in the region of Israel, but this is what a writer says about him, looking to heaven in symbolic language and looks up and says in these words, right? And I saw and I looked up and I saw on the throne four living creatures and among them I saw a lamb, Jesus. I saw a lamb 
standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. Symbolic language, but here's what we see, that there's this worship of this risen sacrifice lamb and what is being proclaimed is this, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open it, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. Here's the reality, he ain't dead. Here's the reality, he is worthy, Christian, of your praise. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of you to cling to. He will not one day, someday fail you. He is there, he is worthy, being worshiped now in heaven. He's not dead, he's alive, he is risen. No, 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 he's not dead, he's alive and he is risen. And one more time as you stand and as we worship and as we celebrate the truth, he's not dead, he's alive, he is risen. Boom!